It is mind boggling to me how frequently the problem isn't the approach. The problem isn't the team. The problem is there's some asshole saying what it should be and they're wrong. On this episode, we're talking frameworks and playbooks. This is Don't Say Content, created in partnership with Share Your Genius. There's a million marketing shows out there, but we're pretty sure no one else is getting as fired up about today's topic as we are. I'm Katie, your producer, and these are your hosts, Devin Bramhall. I rarely encounter anyone who's able to see through a marketing program long enough without it being completely disrupted multiple times to even prove anything. And Margaret Kelsey. Marketing is about changing human behavior and people get very frustrated that you can't change humans, especially change human behavior at scale quickly. This episode, we're diving into the culture, brand, content, and community flywheel. We're also diving into how frameworks actually should be used and also Devin and Margaret's perspective now that they have an outside view as consultants. Let's check in with Devin and Margaret. Okay. So... I am really excited to talk about this today because in consulting and advising, there's been one thing that keeps coming up with pretty much everyone I talk to, and it drives me crazy. And that is the concept of frameworks mm-hmm. or marketing templates. I think that f- prescriptive frameworks are not useful. But frameworks that are truly frameworks, they're guides. They like give you some enough guardrails. Yeah. It's not like a map from A to B. It's more like this is the town and there are different ways to go through the town. When I first started consulting last fall, I remember coming to you because you were already, uh, you'd already established your yes, website I already model. established. Yeah, I had I had set up a website. That's <laughs> not. But you like, knew what you were doing. You had like you had your pricing down. You'd you'd done a lot of research. I did. Do and one of the things that you shared with me was your framework, which is truly a framework in my opinion. And because I was asking you about, you know products, services, how to package, et cetera. And I thought that was really cool. And it keeps coming up in my mind this week because I keep being shown frameworks that I think are not frameworks. (laughs) And you and Ashley are the only ones recently who've showed me true. So in the interest of stopping saying frameworks, Frameworks. I wanted you to tell everybody, give away your secrets. Yeah. But first like back up and say what it, how you got there, and then we'll go into it. Yeah, I've been using a couple working names. It's either depending on the the person that I'm talking to. So sometimes I call it the effective brand framework. Sometimes I call it the culture brand content community flywheel. But essentially what it is, is I think it's at the appropriate altitude to help set up founders to think about brand content community in the right way, rather than thinking of them as either really tactical or really siloed or really service-based programs. And so how I came up with it is, I know I keep talking about this, but I'm just like trying to chase the high that was Envision early days of why it worked. And for a little while afterwards, I was using Envision playbooks, like truly playbooks of 
hey, we used to have a pop-up on the website giving people the chance to win a free t-shirt that was like an unbranded said design makes everything possible on it by cool designers. And that was like a specific like playbook or tactic. And I was like, oh, people love t-shirts. So let's do t-shirts. And then I quickly ran through all of them, realizing that every place I went had a new audience and it was a different time and a different whatever. And then what I wanted to do, I was like, well, why did those things work? Right? Like what was the secret sauce behind the why of these little individual tactics that we played with. I honestly spent years and years and years thinking about it, years and years and years thinking about the individual tactics and then trying to ladder them up to something that made sense. And and what I came up with was the fact that there was really this um, intertwinement. Intertwinement? They were intertwined? Yeah, I don't know. There was like this really interesting... (laughs) collaboration between internal culture, external brand, content, and community, and the way that those things intersected, intertwined, whatever whatever word you want to use there, that was really the magic of the why behind how we built a really huge community of folks that loved the brand, that felt engaged both internally at the company, which was remote before remote was really cool, and externally with designers who really thought and felt felt some sort of emotional draw to business software, which I think is just the most fun thing in the entire world. So wait, I noticed there was one thing missing oh, yeah. from what you named, and I'm curious why. You didn't mention the product. Mm which I find very interesting. And I think any product person is probably cringing right now. I know it's a product that growth motion and I didn't say product once. Yeah. Yeah. On purpose by acts. Like what's the, what's your thought? So for me where I see this cog, there's like a bigger PLG cog, which I could like then map out like how to even run a successful PLG business. And this is the marketing piece of it or the up funnel piece of it, wherever you want to put this, this brand piece. To me, the most important thing was that the, this flywheel that brings in insights from the community then gets embedded into the culture of the organization so that this brand team, this marketing team can bring insights from the community inside the organization to the appropriate place, whether that's customer success, whether that's product, whether that's wherever it needs to go. If you can create the community, the community inflow of, of signals to be strong enough and this team to be listen to enough internally, product will get the information. And product can play a piece in this too. Where I see product and product-led growth is that product solves one piece of these people's problems, but brand and marketing can solve so much more than what your product can solve. And that's where you start to create a really strong community of people that feel like you really get them because you don't just get the fact that they need to do that thing or like push that button or like get that piece of information at their job but the brand and the community and the content can make them feel like you really understand them and you're really- or just show them that you do yeah. it's not just a feeling it's a fact if you're going to invest that much in the community and understanding their problem it's not that you that it's not a feeling it's a fact at that point because you're spent you've immersed yourself so much So wait, okay. I have so many questions, but let's back up because I have heard this framework before, but nobody else has. So let's 
a few Let's people go through it first dabbled. and then yeah. okay so when I talk about and let me I'm actually going to pop it up so I can look through my own notes about it because I feel like every time I have a conversation it helps me clarify additional pieces here so the flywheel here and I'll say it again it's culture brand content and community so at a high level how these things intersect with one another is that you build a strong internal culture that is truly in service of your end users, of the folks that are using your product, of your customer, whatever type of company you are. Your internal culture should be hyper obsessed with that persona, with that type of person, with the problems that they're thinking about, whatever it might be. And so the first thing here is obviously like you have to be a mature enough company to understand who that target market is. If you're pre-product market fit and you're still like shopping your product around to different different types of users and you haven't figured out who actually could use your product yet, this is probably a little later stage for you. But internally, your culture has to be built on obsessing over who needs to use this product. That means also that your internal cultural values are aligned to the values that your end users or the users of your product also care about. And then that should be also your brand values, right? So your external representation brand of your internal culture should be fairly one-to-one so that it feels like that piece of the flywheel is really strong. So then when your brand externally is a is a one-to-one representation of your internal culture, you then want to start creating content that is fully aligned with and for your community. And you can build other things in your community that truly solve the problem that is maybe even bigger than the problem that your product solves. And you listen to that community and you create content for them and you test and see what resonates to the point where you have a lot of these data points of what is happening in the community. And then you feed those data points back internally in your culture to inform product decisions, customer success decisions, marketing decisions, go-to-market decisions. And that is a really powerful flywheel then to help kind of North Star culture a little bit better and then show that externally in brand. And this thing ends up picking up and and gaining steam and you can kind of build a little bit of a culty community. Is there a size of company in which this breaks? I'm thinking about a big company that I'm working with right now and the number of layers, the multiple types of marketing teams, you know, and how things like style guides that are supposed to enable end up kind of arbitrarily restricting in certain ways, how it's so difficult to stay aligned when there's tens of thousands of people, you know, when I think about that flywheel, it makes perfect sense to me at a company in which like you can still reach your hands out. Actually, I want to use a different metaphor because don't, I had this like rule don't at touch animals. Just don't, <laughs> don't touch your employee. Like just don't touch each other at work. Just never do it. I mean, it was easy for us when we were remote, but like that was my thing. I was like, just don't <laughs> touch your coworkers. Solid rule, so I think we need a different metaphor. What does that look like when the company gets bigger? Yeah. Uh, So listen, I think this is the easiest thing to do with anything that is a a huge cultural shift is to start it from zero to one, right? This is an interesting thing to put in play when you're smaller. I think that you can do this in a scrappier version at a larger company because it works so well and you start to become the team that has really interesting insights and is so close to the 
customer and so close to the community. And I can see it working, but you would have to be like a small tag teamy group that shows repeated value of this kind of work. And then that can be an interesting adoption point if, if people are like always coming to your team for community insights and for your cultural values and how strong your, you know, culture and high performance is. And so I think that there's an interesting entryway there, but this is like a cross-functional approach where you have to get, you have to feel ownership over culture internal culture and external brand. And those things are pretty meaty teams once you get to larger companies. You know, that's interesting because, and not to use the same example twice, but I'm going to, giant company I'm working for, they do have this marketing team that is serving one subset of their audience. And so it's like the corporate marketing team serves the business leaders this team serves the practitioners, that sort of next level decision maker and influencer. And what's interesting is this marketing department includes community and it includes the developer advocates. So you've got this like sort of team. (laughs) What? I said, you've got the pieces. Right. It's like demand gen, content, community. And so then the way they're using company values is to like apply it to approaches that they're able to take somewhat independently. And so I just saw how that could work. I'm going to drop, this is, I'm not trying to be negative. It has nothing to do with your framework, but I'm going to drop another bomb because I can't believe I'm still seeing this happen. Yeah. And actually, I was reflecting on this this morning when I was looking at LinkedIn and I was seeing when you were a few other people talk what? When you were up at 3 a.m.? Four. Four. Yes. That's why I have that tweet from like 10 years ago. And I was like, is it weird that I wake up at 4.04 and the first thing I think of is page not found? So nerdy. <laughs> Dream not found. Please <laughs> awaken. <laughs> please, please go back to bed. But there was like more, I was like noticing more people sharing these frameworks and, you know, one person that I'm going to mention later was talking about sort of the old school marketing funnel. And my first thought was the vast majority of marketing teams never get the chance to even put this emotion long enough before everything completely changes. Some product or engineering person comes in and messes it all up, usually the founder, but when it's for smaller companies. But like I rarely encounter anyone who's able to see through a marketing program long enough without it being completely disrupted multiple times to even prove anything. I think that's why everyone's sharing so many of these, you know, guides and playbooks and frameworks. Cause I'm like, get in there fast and do something. And maybe this will work because we only have a couple years before. Yeah. That was the thing about Envision. I think that was my perception of HubSpot. That was my experience at Help Scout is we at least in the beginning had time to see things through. And that was really like, you really got to see, did this work or not? What are we going to do? You know, how are we going to evolve it? Yeah. And I think going back to when we've talked about altitude and being at the right altitude, I think that that's the core of what we're feeling here in terms of like when playbooks and frameworks aren't playbooks and frameworks because they're at the wrong altitude. It's very tactical. And like, this is what you need to build. What I'm talking through is like, I don't know what word you want to attach to it. It's a methodology, right? It's a, it's a, um, it's a philosophy. It's a philosophy. It informs team structure. It 
And, and I don't just mean like the positions on the org chart. I mean, like it informs the meetings that you need to have. It informs even the executive layer meetings of where this team can sit and what they can influence and what they can talk to. And like, so when I say even like org structure, I don't just mean like, like titles written on a hierarchy. I mean, like meeting cadence and insight gathering and the flow of information. And that's more interesting to me. If you have a framework that helps me understand what meetings people should be in and not just what their title is, that to me is like really powerful. What, what activities they should be doing, what kind of insights they should be gathering, where their brain space should be. Like those are frameworks that are actually useful because we'll need to experiment with the tactical implementation of it to make it right for the company and the time period that we live in and the changing, you know, landscape of tools and channels and whatever. But you need to have a solid plan of what to work towards at the right altitude. So that way you're actually like, you're experimenting in the right altitude down like at the right tactical level, but you're putting in place something that has a solid methodology and principles philosophy behind it. I remember I worked for this branding agency, my first job out of college, and they did consumer products. So they made the first in-home single cup Keurig. Before that, Keurig was like an industrial, like it was for office buildings. They were these big giant things and they wanted to go in the home. And so they did product design, engineering, package design, branding, all of that. And you could do some or all of it. And I remember what they understood is the cross-functional nature of doing something. From the very beginning, folks across the, the process were in meetings together. So it's not like industrial design went off and started making a product and packaging went over here and branding went over here and then talked to pack. You know, it was all done, not every piece of it, but they were in constant meetings together. Yeah. Yeah. All of those things influence the brand experience. That's just like not been my experience for most of my career. To me, it was finding founders that really cared and let you do this work because they were also aligned to the fact that it's it's solving a problem and the people that we solve problems for are the most important thing. And so then it's easy to implement this. I always think about like when you're having a discussion or an argument, you need to scaffold it off of the last thing that you know you agree with from that person. And it's hard to start off with something above you need to care about the people that your company gets money from. Yeah. <laughs> like I can't actually go any higher there. So if we don't agree on that at an executive level, like I'm never going to be able to convince you of this because I actually don't even know what my argument is above that besides like making money is good. People give us money. We should care about those people. And here's a way to do that and also have incredible business value. So for me, I think that's where it stems from. It's not even about growth at all costs or like sustainable growth, because those are just toggles I think that you can play around with here. I think that yeah. you could you could grow do this and do growth at all costs with this framework still. That's fair. That's fair. I was actually lucky to work with several founders who really cared about the customer. I remember Jay Meadle at Shareholic. 
he was a really good example of that. You could just see it. Like it was really important to him mm-hmm. that if our customers had a problem, like he would go in and like fix them, fix problems himself, yeah. do customer support. Like it really mattered to him. And that still never helped any of them like get out of their own way either. It almost can make it like, I think it's just this like weird, I don't know why I'm feeling very like reflective of this today, but it is mind boggling to me how frequently the problem isn't the approach. The problem isn't the team. The problem is there's some asshole saying what it should be and they're wrong. You mean the implementation? Like it needs to be a video series, and that's what. Like, is that what you're saying? Is that somebody? No, just like they don't even. They come in and meddle with the marketing team, Mm -hmm. and they're just. It just keeps happening. Like I keep seeing new examples in different places, and I'm like, oh, it's not just early stage founders. It's not just like it's just all of like. I don't understand what it is about marketing that makes people so emotional. I've seen. Like they just really want to control it. It feels like this thing that gets people get very controlling about across departments, even when they have no idea what they're talking about and they're completely wrong. Yeah. I don't understand that. Like the problem isn't the framework. The problem isn't the execution. The problem is just there's not enough leave marketing alone. (laughs) Let them do their jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, marketing is about changing human behavior and people get very frustrated that you can't change humans, especially change human behavior at scale quickly. If I my mic wasn't expensive, I would drop it on the floor right now. (laughs) In one to one relationships, I feel that same way where I want to have people change at the you know, I want to change behavior of folks around me. I've I've you know, said this to my sister before where I'm like, God, if I could just snap my fingers and everyone did what I wanted, my life would be great. (laughs) That's why I went into marketing. Um, but I think, I, I think that's at the core of it is, is humans are irrational, right? Like there's books written on the fact that human beings aren't rational and that they take a long time to change opinions and facts. And all of that stuff takes a long time. And there's a unwillingness to give practitioners of marketing the bandwidth to do the things that we know as students of human psychology and behavior that we know need to happen in order to change hearts and minds. Um, And so people think, oh, I can do it because I, you know, whatever reason why they think they can do it. Ego? I don't know. So I've been thinking a lot about what we were going to talk about today. And so it just so happened that every post I read in the last 24 hours was like about this, basically. Once and you see it, you can't unsee it. Exactly. One of them actually was a tweet from Emily Kramer from last fall. It was like from October. But I had apparently saved it somewhere. And I was like going through bookmarks. Indeed. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is a nail because I'm a hammer. And... The post is about something like it's bigger than just this topic. She presents the limitations of a sales-centric marketing strategy. And she said, people think B2B marketing teams are just a service organization to sales. Marketing only exists to generate qualified leads this quarter. This sales-centric view of marketing is limiting your efficiency and revenue growth. 
and she talks about the funnel, um, which I still don't like the funnel, but, um, you know, and how they support sales and customer success. But she said they should focus on more than just the short-term MQL goals, which is where I really piqued my interest, right? Because I'm like, yes, it's not that you don't need to measure those metrics, but your vision has to be better or bigger rather than, am I going to achieve this number? Yeah. It made me think of the brand, culture, community, right? That's most of the flywheel that you're discussing. And it's really just a built-in bigger vision where the product is one part of the problem, the bottom of funnel, if we have to keep talking about the goddamn fucking funnel. Is your biggest concern with the funnel because it's like nobody actually buys in a linear predictable fashion or nobody like behaves in a linear predictable fashion? That's my beef with the journey. Have you seen those like insane if you Google journey map, it's the only one that shows up. It's like these arrows going horizontally and this weird, like swirly line going on top of it. I'm like, I need you to know that this is stupid. It means nothing. And so I, I'm giving a talk in a month and I talk about this where I show that slot, that image. And then I'm like, this is what a customer journey should look like. And I show one of the, like the New York train map. Yeah, it's cray, but that's what it should be, you know. And that's kind of like you're talking about a flywheel because you're looking at it from out here, trying to show again a framework isn't a specific plan. Yeah, it's just the boundary, and so you see that cycle. But that the way that cycle plays out is through many multiple messy journeys. Yeah, some of which just kind of like, like they just fade away until the person comes back six months later. And is like, this is what happened to animals. People are like, I've been reading your blog for years, months, whatever. I've been dying to work with you. And now I'm ready. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's like, I've been watching this. Um, there's one that pops up on my Instagram feed about the planets and looking at what we were taught as like the solar system of the planets circling each other, but what's actually happening. And it shows it in it's like three dimensionality of our solar system flying through space and the planets kind of like trailing. And it's a really cool juxtaposition of it's not even this we're looking at it on a two dimensional page, but what it actually is, is there's like other dimension that, you know, we're hurtling through space and these planets are rotating around each other it's literal chaos and it's fine yeah it's absolutely fine you don't need to represent it back in the olden days before you and i were even alive marketing you used to measure market saturation in an area Mm -hmm. put a freaking billboard up or an ad campaign measure market saturation after yep and that was fine that was before we were born, was it? I mean, they might still do it. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Commercials and stuff before you could track everything. This was yeah. like always my beef. I was like, it's great that you can measure more stuff because it does, it, it does lead to potentially better creative output, better strategic output, et cetera, but applied in a reductive, boring way as if you're trying to solve for X it just leads to everyone doing the exact same thing and wondering why, you know, there's such a thing as diminishing returns or things go flat or whatever. I'm like, because you forgot 
yeah. that were people. It's yeah. crazy. Okay, moving on. I could I could rant about that forever. So the second, this is more recent. Carrie Teal's. Oh my gosh, what if I said her last name wrong? I'm sorry, but you said something I thought was really interesting. She said, I was recently challenged to define demand generation in a single sentence. I found this really challenging because I think the old school definition needs an overhaul. The old way, Gartner, is a marketing strategy focused on building reliable brand awareness and interest, resulting in high quality leads. My definition is a set of B2B marketing practices focused on creating a need in the market for your product building awareness of your brand as a solution for that need and funneling those who are interested in your product down a path to learn more resulting in a purchase decision. I found that to be logical. To me, it didn't feel totally, I don't want to use the word right, but it didn't, I was like, it felt like there was something missing and that's what led me back to the flywheel. Let me take animals for, as an example, right? I joined, we were a content marketing agency. Fine we were redoing the values. What came out was I, I was like, look, I want to make the internet a more helpful place. That's your like big mission that you'll never achieve. Right. That's the thing, you know, Mm -hmm. that's your change the world statement. The way we're going to do it is two ways. We're going to help companies improve their content marketing, both through strategy and the actual outputs. And we'll influence through the work we do with them. And then by being a teaching organization, We built education into operations so that like we're also producing talent that then goes to more companies and makes their, you know, and so we're having this exponential impact and that felt, that brought me to work every day. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, oh, we're making a blog post for you. I was like, we're on a mission to positively impact the world in which we operate and we operate in the internet. And yeah. so let's make that shit better, right? Okay, Devin. Wait, have you ever read the book Reinventing Organizations? I think that this is really going to describe a lot of the things that you're talking about. And I'm going to give a really bad reductionist view of the book, which is that throughout periods of human history, human beings have created organizational structures to that um, model and that are built off of our current advancement in society, right? So you think about even Middle Ages, very dogmatic, very top-down authoritarian kind of things. And this book sets up the fact that we've gone through predictable, not predictable, but we've gone through stages throughout human history of different types of organizations. And we're at a cusp right now of building different types of organizations that are truly built on mission, on personal satisfaction about where you fit into a larger structure. And even the organizations that we're moving out of are very financial based, very performance based. And now it's more that people are looking towards what is my purpose on earth and how can I be in an organization that helps fulfill my own purpose and a broader purpose. And that becomes the most important thing for people to look for rather than that I'm going to make a paycheck and go home and do X, Y, Z thing. And so it's a really interesting, they like color code these organizations. But I think that what we're tapping at right now is the fact that we, there is something changing and shifting underneath us right now 
and that there's this old school of thought of organizations that we don't need to do that work. And there's new organizations that understand the value and the efficacy to tap into that kind of new world. Okay, so I have another headline, but before I get into that, I just remembered that I got, do you know what ASMR is? Yeah, yeah. Okay, someone sent me an email asking me if I would record myself stepping on grapes for 10 minutes and they would like pay me for it. And I was like, is this porn? Wait. (laughs) Did they want a video of your feet stepping on the grapes or? Yes. Hi, Devin. (laughs) I was wondering if you would have any interest in doing an ASMR video. This sounds odd, but you would just have to film yourself crushing a large pile of grapes with your bare feet for 10 minutes. Okay, this is not ASMR that they're looking for. This is feet stuff. Right. (laughs) He said you would not have to reveal your identity in the video and the video would not be shared or published. Are they paying for this? I usually offer $100 for the video and $40 for the grapes with potential for more future videos with different fruits and vegetables. Let me know if you're interested. Wait, do you know who sent this to you or is this really just like a random email? I've never heard of this person before. And it came in through your email, your LinkedIn. Where did it come in from? And it came from an an email that, (laughs) you know how some things look like junk? It's just a, a guy's name. And it, it's at proton.me. I, and I was like, this is, I mean, obviously I'm not going to respond. Like it is junk, but like it came across very much like a regular email. Like someone yeah. was emailing me and saying, Hey Devin. So I was wondering if you could babysit today. I need help. Uh, I would pay you a hundred dollars plus $40 to get dinner for you and my child. Yeah. Are you interested? <laughs> Signed, you know, my name. It's like, like That's not even casual. It's not, this is the this is the best part. Is it's not like it's a scam. Like it comes across as not a scam. It comes across yeah. as just like a very strange. Did it happen after the podcast launch? Yes. Uh. Yes. And you want to know something else? Always. This isn't the first time <laughs> I've gotten a request to show my feet for money. This actually happens to me like kind of regularly. Usually it's on Instagram though. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> like I, just, I this better listen, make I, it in. <laughs> Please, producers, if we can figure out a way. I need it. I need this to be it. And the crazy thing is, I understand it. I have perfect feet. <laughs> oh God, don't say that. They're gonna come out of the woodworks. <laughs> gorgeous. Like they I tell I have a friend who's objectively beautiful. She's a model. She's tall. She's perfect. She has the most gangly feet I've ever seen. And I tell her about it all the time. But for some reason, like my feet just came out perfect. And I I think it's funny, but I don't understand how people know that. Maybe it's just, they can just tell. You just, the vibes are right for good feet vibes. Feet I've vibe. just never gotten it in my email before. I was like, hey. <laughs> Like, should I start an OnlyFans with my yes. feet? I feel like I've I heard that. I've money. heard that like people pay. People pay for free. 140 bucks. All right. This is where our show ends. Thanks for tuning in. And if you like what we're doing here, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Maybe share with your friends. Up to you. I'll see you next time. You know, when everything is, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail or whatever. When you have I, a hammer, when you need a hammer.
when you are a hammer. <laughs> you are a hammerhead shark and everything is a fish. <laughs> when you're a cat and everything else is a mouse. 